Well, good morning again, church. Grateful for our church body to be here, healthy and alive. I know some of us are still home and sick. I was just getting a text from the Hummers this morning. Usually sit up right here to my right. Uh, Scott and Teresa are still having a little bit of symptoms. Uh, COVID-free, but still sick for sure. Not that, you know, if you don't have COVID, it doesn't mean we don't have compassion for you, but, you know. And then I also got a text from Terry and Amy this morning who are still going to be tuning in from home as well. But for our time, if you would, I'd invite you to turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. From time to time, I have the amazing opportunity to walk very slowly through the Gospel of John. And because I only get up here a few weeks uh, at a time, every few weeks or so, I just can't work through it verse by verse. If that were the case, we'd be in John until I'd, I'd probably pass away. So I'm going to be skipping some things. I'm going to be picking and choosing what I really want us as a church to here, So we find ourselves in John chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 15 to 24. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you." Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. I've entitled this message very simply, The Promises of God, because you can just see right there, there are many promises coming to the disciples and also all those who would come after them as well. In his book, Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges writes this, The Bible is full of God's promises to provide for us spiritually and materially, to never forsake us, to give us peace in difficult times, to cause all circumstances to work together for our good, and finally to bring us safely home to glory. Not one of those promises is dependent upon our performance. They are all dependent on the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. In his book on biblical theology, Michael Lawrence writes, 
From the opening pages of Scripture to their close, the story of God's redemptive activity is structured by promises made and promises kept. Charles Spurgeon writes of an poor old Christian woman who was accustomed to make marginal notes in her Bible. And she placed against one text a T and a P. The minister asked her what they meant, and she said, tried and proved. For I tried that promise on such a such occasion and found it to be true. What about you? Are you currently living your Christian life in the light of God's promises? What about your fight, your struggle, your war with your trifold enemy, your flesh, the devil, and the world? Do you remember or meditate on God's promises in Holy Scripture to be victorious in that daily battle? Maybe you are unaware of certain promises that you possess as a believer and that God has given to you for your encouragement and for your strength in this life. If that's the case, I believe that John 14 is one of those many few promises in Scripture that we can be reminded of. Now, of course, we haven't been in John for a little while, but the context here is extremely important. So let me set it for us before we begin. We find ourselves with Jesus and the 11 disciples in the upper room discourse. That upper room discourse consists of chapters 13 through 17 in John's gospel. Judas has just been identified by Jesus as the betrayer, and he has already been dismissed to go and betray Christ. We are on the eve of Christ's death, Thursday evening, and Jesus no doubt has on his mind the cross, the event where he would become the sin bearer for his people. And of course, all of the horrors that would accompany the things that he would face there on Calvary. And yet Jesus now is more concerned for his troubled sheep. He's more concerned for his fretful friends, his confused followers, his doubtful witnesses, the disciples. There would the world was, their world was about to be shattered, and they knew it because he has just been announcing to them that he was going to leave. If you're there in John 14, you'll see in chapter 13 and verse 33, he says to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What would that mean for them? Other than losing their closest friend, their Lord, their master, their God, who comforted them, who was leaving, 
They now knew that all of the animosity, all of the hatred, all of the rejection that came to their Lord was about to come to them once he left. And he wasn't going to be there to protect them. They just learned that they're going to learn at least. There's some confusion right now concerning Judas and what he was talking about with Christ. But they will learn that one of them in the 12 was actually deceiving all of them for the entirety of Christ's ministry. Even in this night, they would learn that one of their leaders, Peter himself, in his strength and in his leadership, would actually deny Jesus three times. All that to say, they had many reasons in their minds to be fearful. And hence, Jesus abruptly shifts the conversation by exclaiming to them in chapter 14 and verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Stop being troubled. And how does he stop them or try to stop them from being troubled? He goes on to comfort his disciples that he is preparing many things for them upon his departure. That where he is going, that there will be also one day. He assures them that this separation will only be for a limited time. There in chapter 14 and verse 3, Jesus says to them, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. There's a note of tenderness in his words to his disciples. We have ended Christ's public ministry to all those that he had preached to and taught. There's now just the disciples and his language, his tone, his demeanor has completely changed. He is now discipling his disciples the best that he can before he is about to leave them. And really, Christ just, I see just his perfect example of what discipleship should look like in the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul urges pastors and the people in that congregation how to treat each other, each other in the church, how we disciple one another when we're going through different seasons of life. He says in chapter 5 and verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle among you, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those among you that are in fear or are in doubt. Encourage them to be bold in the faith. Well, where did Paul get such a thought? Well, he would have learned that Christ exemplified this model of discipleship perfectly when Jesus did this with his disciples. If you're there in John chapter 14, Jesus is giving the disciples promises after promises after promises. In chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Most of Jesus' final discourse to his disciples consists of promises, not commands. He spends the entire evening telling his disciples what he would do for them rather than listing any kind of rules or instructions for them to obey. And that, beloved, is at the heart and root of all gospel truth, is it not? It's in complete contrast to the law, which gives orders and threatens with condemnation if not obeyed. But the gospel is the good news about what God has done in and of his own choice and will to save sinners. Just go ahead and read sometime chapters 13 through 17 in John's gospel. And you will find that Jesus is not asking or commanding the disciples to do very much at all. He calls them to love one another. Follow in my example. I give you a new commandment that you will love one another. Out of all those chapters I've read two or three times this week, that's the only thing that I can find in chapters 13 to 17, that Jesus is calling the disciples to do. Just follow my example. Now, in this discourse, we don't hear much from the disciples except from Peter in chapter 13 and Philip in chapter 14. They're the only two that we know of that we hear their words when they speak in this discourse. After Jesus says to the disciples that if you've seen me, Jesus... You've seen the Father. You know the words. Philip still asks, Lord, just show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. That wasn't good. Peter has a turn to speak, and with confidence, he says, Lord, why can I not follow you when you leave? Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Peter Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And in this discourse, we also know from the other gospel writers that there's an argument among them about which of them is going to be the greatest. This is sinners at their best. This is what we do. If we were there, we'd be thinking and doing the same exact thing. This is what sinners bring to the table in the midst of God. We are hopeless without Christ. That's all that I see as I've been reading throughout this week. Jesus is saying, Peter, Philip, sit down and let me tell you what I am going to do for you. If you ever read those few chapters, 13 to 17, you will see Jesus' words to his disciples are all filled with indicatives. 
They're all statements of facts of what Jesus has done, is doing, or will do on behalf of the disciples. And they are all statements of fact coming from the lips of the Son of God to his people on how the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit all function in the life of believers. I've never done this before, but I think it is going to be very beneficial if I read through the passage one more time, and I'm going to give it a little bit more emphasis in things, okay? I'm going to read through it quickly, but just listen to the words after a little bit of an explanation that I've been giving you. He says to them, if you love me, you will keep my my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Not much of a head-scratcher on that one. I don't think any of you are looking at those words and scratching your head and thinking, I wonder what he means. Did you notice all of the I wills? Nothing is asked of the disciples. No hints of anything required on their part. Jesus speaks with profound authority on the things that are taking place and will take place on behalf of the disciples. How is it that Christ can speak with such authority? See, we don't have a hard time believing what Christ will do, but what about us? How can he be so sure that we will keep his word if we love him? That if we love him, we will obey him. Sounds kind of forced. And especially in the context of the failures of the disciple, how can Christ have any kind of confidence or hope that the disciples will do anything at this point? We have to, church, understand something. We have to understand that there is something much bigger than us going on here. There's something much bigger than the disciples of what's going on here. And it's this. God's integrity is at stake. You're all asking why. How is that possible? Where are you getting this from? 
It's this. In the Old Testament, Yahweh made some very clear promises of making a new people for himself. And those promises are seen in the new covenant. In passages like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Now in Jeremiah 31, Yahweh begins to set or explain the conditions of the new covenant. A better covenant. A covenant that's in contrast to the old Mosaic covenant under which Israel failed miserably. And since Israel failed and both and broke the Mosaic covenant, God promised that it would be superseded by a better new covenant. Listen to the language in Jeremiah 31. Yahweh is speaking of this covenant of a new people. He says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel 36, speaking of the same covenant, Yahweh declares, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will give them a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's a quick summary statement of the new covenant. Listen to these words carefully. The new covenant is an unconditional and eternal covenant whereby God enables and empowers his people to serve him willingly and to remain in his blessings. Did you get that? You say, why is it unconditional? How is it unconditional? Because it is based on all of the I wills of God. He has set the conditions and everything that he is setting, he is going to meet them. He is saying, I will do this very thing to a new people. Those are some very big promises. Causing sinners to become a new people, to walk with him, to listen to him, to obey him from the heart. He better get to work. And he is right here in John chapter 14. Jesus Christ God in the flesh is making a people for himself. Jesus knows that he is the mediator of the new covenant. He just got through this very night lifting up the cup and declaring this cup that is poured out is the new covenant in my blood. He just declared that. And he knows that his death 
on the cross is the basis of the promises in the new covenant. He knows that he is a day away from dying in the place of his people. He knows and he has already declared that he will rise in three days. He has declared that he will send to the Father at his right hand. And then Father, Son, and Spirit will continue to make a new people for themselves. And thus fulfilling all that the Godhead had already commissioned before time began. That is what's at stake here. His promises must be fulfilled. You know, and I'm sure most of you have had debates and conversations, I'm sure of it, over the issue of free will or God's prevenient grace or the belief that salvation is predicated on the choice of the sinner in order to enact salvation on our part. I don't hear any language from what we've read in the New Covenant, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, or in Christ's words in the Gospel of John. I don't hear any language that says, I will give you a new heart only if you ask me. I will put my spirit within you if you give me permission. Rather, Jesus, coming as God in the flesh, writes, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16, Christ says straight to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 6, 39, Christ says, this is the will of him who sent me down, that I will lose none of all that he has given me, rather raise it up on the last day. Why? Because God has made promises to make a people. And Christ here in John chapter 14 is saying, I am here to fulfill them. 1 Peter 2.9, you know it well. Peter says, of those that he is writing to believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And you say, Nick, where, where are you getting that in, in, in John? What's, what's going on right now? Well, look there in John chapter 15, or John chapter 14. I don't think I've had you turn anywhere, right? John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you... Love me. Stop right there. There's an issue. If you love me, I ask the question, how does a love for Christ come about? 
how does a love for Christ come about? You're going to have Ephesians chapter 2 up there. I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I Hopefully it's up there. I've never done this before, so it's uncomfortable. I've usually had you turn, but there's a lot of passages, so they're just going to be up there for you to read, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Paul says of the believers that he writes to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Let's say it very plainly. We were dead. And God, out of his great love for us, raised our rotting corpse. We came into this world D O. A, dead on arrival. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. In Adam, all died. He was our representative head. He fell, death spread to all of mankind. So if we are dead, then we cannot make a choice. So therefore, God has to breathe life into our lungs, and he doesn't ask us for our permission. He has to regenerate our deadness. He causes us to be born again. He puts his spirit within you. He gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new will, new emotions, new love, new loyalty, completely new from inside and out. John the Apostle in 1 John, the same writer of the Gospel of John, writes in chapter 4 in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves, get this, has been born of God. God and knows him. 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. When we love God, it means that we have truly been born again, born anew. And when we love others, we know that God's spirit dwells in us. 1 John 4.19, you know it well. We love because he first loved us. That is how love comes about. 
So of course, there in chapter 14 and verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So of course, there is an inseparable link between love for Christ and obedience to his commands. It's not an obedience to an abstract set of rules and regulations. It's an obedience to a person because of a relationship. And the relationship that we are now in was initiated by Christ and by Christ alone. One more verse in 1 John 2 and verse 3, talking about this inseparable link between love and obedience. John says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. A liar, how? Because a person who professes that they have entered into a loving, united relationship with Jesus Christ and has no or very little desire to obey him is lying about the relationship with him because God has promised to cause all of his people to love and obey him. And there's no good reason to complicate those things. It really is that simple to understand in the Christian life. In my experience in the church, I've seen it over my short years as a believer. Because we have family, friends, and loved ones that we are so desperate to be saved. We don't think that they are, or it's possible that they are, but we know that the alternative is is hell, and we don't want them to go there. And so in turn, we have family, friends, loved ones, and acquaintances that we say, oh, they're, they're a believer, they're just in disobedience. They haven't walked through the doors of the church in five, six, ten years. They made a profession of faith in Christ. They showed some kind of visible fruit at one time, and we say that they're believers. It's well intentions, but there's a danger there. Because if we diminish the love and obedience that Christians are to have for Christ, then we diminish God's glory. We diminish his work of regeneration and transformation. We diminish his promises there. We just read in the new covenant about what God will do of those he is saving. And then we're not understanding biblical conversion. I remember just a few Months ago, when Rob and Catherine uh, Rennells, Rob's over there teaching the kids, and I think Catherine is at home right now with Sola. And most of you guys have probably um, 
talked or hung out with Rob a little while. He's an energetic and passionate fellow for sure, and we've been blessed by his love for Christ, no doubt. And I remember the first few days that he was with me, I was a little even rebuked by him. I remember just talking, just having a face-to-face conversation with him, and, and I was just, we were talking about preaching, we were talking about reading the Word, all the things we saw in Scripture, we were talking about some of our favorite Bible teachers, and he's just really excited. He's got red cheeks, and he, you could just tell he's really excited talking to me, and we're, there's just a camaraderie going on, and he just says, dude, you love Jesus. I was like, yeah, I do love Jesus. You're right. I was, I was just, I was thrown off by it. I never heard someone say that to me before. And I remember him talking about Brother CD one time after a couple of weeks after I remember him saying, like, dude, you love Jesus. And then he talked to CD for a little while and he came and talked to me about that conversation that he was having with CD. And he was talking to me about CD and his discipleship group and the books that CD was reading. He's like, dude, that guy loves Jesus. And anybody that came into contact with Rob that was showing a love for Christ and a love for his church and a love for good supplemental gospel books, Rob would just stop and say, like, dude, that guy loves Jesus. Because Rob was recognizing that those that are in the church that are seeking to obey God in his word, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Rob makes the connection and says, they love Jesus Christ. So Rob, if you're listening to this, you, you rebuked me, and I, and I appreciate it. I never heard it put that way, but yeah, I love Jesus. I remember just not that long ago when we were in Philippians chapter 2, And verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's important that it says, it doesn't say, it's really important that it doesn't say, for it is Nick who works in Nick both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. That really wouldn't work out because I don't work anything in me I have to work it out of me. And because of that truth, that God is faithful and true, and in the promises of the new covenant, he continually works things in me. And because of that, I am greatly encouraged in my walk and in my sanctification. I've been reading a number of books just recently on marriage. And by God's grace, I have been able to see areas in my marriage that I have been neglecting, areas that I've been blind. I've lacked wholesome communication. I've been self-righteous a lot of the time. I often keep a record of wrongs. I at times have a spirit of bitterness, which in turn causes my words, demeanor, and body language to be unkind, ungracious, and unloving towards my wife. 
I've had a lack of being willing to bear my wife's burdens and actually in turn being a burden to her and adding to her burdens rather than relieving her of her burdens. A lot of the time, I try to show her love, but I do it when I know it'll benefit me or I do it when I know she's watching me, which really isn't love at all. It's just nothing but a self-love. I can go on and on. And this isn't a sermon about marriage. But this is what I've been going through. Though my sin has been exposed, though I have confessed to my wife numerous times, though I have repented, actually changed the direction of my life in certain ways, I have walked away ultimately encouraged. Why? Because of the promises of God. Because I am comforted by the fact that I know I'm not an illegitimate child. That my father who loves me chastises me for my good. I'm comforted by the fact that he who began a good work in me will see it to completion. I'm not hoping in it. I know it's going to happen. I'm encouraged and comforted by the fact that he has promised to make a new people, a people with new hearts, a people who have been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a people who will in turn love, obey, and serve their gracious God, and that he does it all for his glory, and he's added me into that new people. He gets the glory, of course, because he is accomplishing all that he set out to do by making all of us the most unlikely of people, the recipients of his new covenant. I'm encouraged by it and driven in my determination, in my walk to know that he has promised to keep me walking in his commands, that my sanctification is based on the I wills of the one who is faithful and true. If God has decreed, if God has said, I will cause my people, my new people, to walk in my statutes and obey me, then it ultimately doesn't matter how hard my marriage gets. He will accomplish this. He will cause me to walk in his ways and to obey him no matter how difficult my life may seem. He's promised it. It's on him to do this. It ultimately doesn't matter what the world has to throw at me. He will accomplish, accomplish this work in me. It ultimately doesn't matter what schemes the devil has to throw at me. It doesn't matter. God will accomplish this in my life. It ultimately doesn't matter what form of government we may find ourselves under. No matter how totalitarian they may be, he will accomplish this. God has decreed to enable and empower a people to serve him willingly 
and they will remain in that blessing no matter what. I'm encouraged by that because if my salvation and my continuing in my sanctification process depended upon me keeping myself, well, you already know what I'm going to say. Now, all of that was introduction to our passage. I know. I, I normally don't do that, but there's just an overarching theme in this upper discourse, and I think it's that. Now, for the rest of our time, we'll spend very little time just on those first two verses in verses 16 and 17. And maybe next time we will look at the rest of them. Now understand, in order for Yahweh to accomplish in all of us what he has promised to do, we still need something. We actually need three persons. We need Father, Son, and Spirit to accomplish these things. When we're reading through this passage just twice in our time, you would see that it is clearly a Trinitarian passage. All three members, different, distinct persons, are all present in those nine verses. Distinct persons, distinct roles, all of the essence of God. Because all three members of the Godhead play an important role in the life of a believer to accomplish the new covenant and the conditions of that new covenant. Do you see? Now, for our time, we're only going to briefly look at the first person of the Trinity that is presented, that is needed in the life of a believer, and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look there in verse 16. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He is speaking to the 11 disciples he has already declared them to be clean, to be his people. He has excluded Judas before these promises because they are not for Judas. And Jesus, as our great heavenly high priest, intercedes on behalf of them by asking the Father for his disciples not to be alone when, his, when he departs from them. Now, the Greek here is very important to understand. It's crucial to understand Jesus' full meaning when he presents to them the work of the Holy Spirit, another helper. Now, there are two different words in the Greek language for the word another, two different ones. We only have one. In Greek, there's two. Now, the first one is heteros, which means a different Kind, give me another one, as in this wrench doesn't fit, go and give me another one. Okay? The second word is alos, which means another, but it means another of the same kind. As in, I enjoyed that sandwich, give me 
another. Very different. Which word do you think he uses to present and explain God, the Holy Spirit? Allahs. Because it is the word that explains the third person of the Trinity. Not, this is another helper, not one who is different than me, but one who is exactly of the same essence as me. Very simple to understand this. If someone is like Jesus in this way, he is God. That's it. If Jesus says, I am sending you another helper, one who is of the same essence of me, not a different kind, but one who is just like me, that person is nothing short of God. And the disciples would have known in this language what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't sending a substitute teacher. I don't know of your experiences of substitute teachers. You're already laughing because you already know what I'm going to say. And I'm trying to look around and see if there's any substitute teachers right now. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the importance of a substitute teacher. But in my experience, when a substitute teacher came in or when we knew that a substitute teacher was coming in that day or the next day, it was a party. You get to do whatever you want. Maybe there'd be a lesson or two, but you know, the teacher, the substitute teacher wouldn't be instructing very much. He or she would sit there in the corner and just babysit while we did whatever we did. In an elementary school, we just played, played uh, heads up, seven up, right? Right? I know I'm dating myself. I don't know if they're doing that still. It's still doing it? Awesome. Yeah, great. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is sending one to the disciples exactly like himself, one with the same compassion, one with the same attributes of deity, one with the same love for them, the one with the same goals, the one with the same exact mission. The Holy Spirit is the perfect substitute for the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a second best thing for the disciples. Like Jesus, the Spirit would come as God and he would teach them, he would strengthen them, he would intercede for the disciples, though he doesn't have a physical body. And though Jesus' departure was imminent, the Lord promised that he, the Spirit, would be with them forever. And there in verse 17, Jesus continues and says that he is the spirit of truth, which emphasizes his work of revealing spiritual truth to believers. And then he says, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Well, why can't the world see him or know him? It's real simple. If the world didn't recognize the first comforter, the first helper, the one who was just like him, much less could those who are spiritually blind recognize the second one who came in the name of Christ, whose character and essence are exactly like the first, but he cannot be seen with the eyes of flesh. 
To the world, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. They don't know him, they can't see him, and he is irrelevant to the world. Therefore, they cannot receive him. I'm not sure where all of you are at this morning in your faith in Christ. I am mostly ministering biblical truth to born-again believers for our edification and for our growth in Christ. But if any of you are not a Christian, you have not been radically transformed by the grace of God, or maybe you're here and you're still riding the fence of this whole Christianity thing. Listen, your creator the one and only true eternal God entered into time and space. He came to be born in human likeness. He was born miraculously by this Holy Spirit in a virgin named Mary. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He came with the full authority as God in the flesh, and he spoke with that authority, and he came and exposed the world for its evil deeds, along with everybody in it. He showed us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the just penalty of our sins actually is deserving of death before a holy God that he is. He exposed us, and we hated him for it. Mankind actually killed him for that very thing, for showing us the truth of our state. Though it looked like the world had killed Jesus Christ, it was actually his father who crushed his one and only beloved son under the weight of his wrath in the place of sinners like you and like me. And in three days, that same man, God in the flesh, rose from the grave as he had said many, many times, proving to be God. He then ascended to the Father, where he reigns and rules from his rightful throne day in and day out, and he continues for your benefit to give eternal life to whom he will. Friend, if you're here with us today, listen to those words, and we are calling you to repentance, to turn away from your sinful, rebellious lifestyle, to forsake everything in your life that you may think is in the way right now in getting you away from running to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You should now seek him while he may be found because the door of salvation will be closed one day forever and your opportunity will be lost forever. Friend, if you're with us, believe those words of the gospel and come to Jesus Christ. And church, saints, all of you who are blood-bought sinners and recipients of the new covenant, 
Whatever season of life you may find yourselves in right now, none of us are beyond the need of being continually reminded of the new promises that we have in the new covenant. That he who began, initiated that good work in you will see it to completion. We are still a very dependent people. Christ said to the disciples all the things that he will do for them. In that same context in John 15, 5, he also said that apart from me, you can do nothing. May we as a new people in Christ be completely dependent on him and always live in light of his glorious promises of the one who is faithful and true. Amen? Let's pray. All we do and say, Lord, is for your glory. Because in the promises of the new covenant, the things, the benefits of salvation are what you have initiated. Before time began, you chose to set your love and affection upon your church, your bride, whom you would redeem from sin. We are so thankful that you do all things for your own glory. We have become beneficiaries, recipients of the new covenant promises. Continue to encourage us as we read through scripture, memorizing, meditating upon who we are in Christ. You have blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You have worked everything in us. Help us in this new loving relationship that you've given to us. Work out our joy or our salvation with fear and with trembling. May you be glorified in our endeavors. We long for the day when we will see every knee bow before your holy presence and give you the praise that you deserve. We long for the day when we'll be rid of all death and sickness and we will be face to face with our creator for all of eternity. All this came about because of the great love with which you have loved us. You rose us to our justification in the deadness of our sins. Give us a new heart, new loves, new emotions, made us completely new. Be glorified, Lord. May we now honor you and live our lives in a worthy way. Work it in us day in and day out with the complexities and troubles of this life. Help us to be sober-minded and focused upon your work 
in us and through us, continually comfort us, whether it's our marriages, our friendships, church life, job sites, work, whatever it may be, Lord. Know and continually, Holy Spirit, bring to our remembrance all the things that you have promised us, that you will see us through all of it, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how our flesh is, no matter what the devil throws at us. Father, thank you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.